I invite you to take out your Bibles and turn uh, almost to the very end again to 1 Peter, uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9. That's where the text for our, our sermon will come from today. We're looking at the fruit of the Spirit. Last week we dealt with the first fruit, love. This week we're going to talk about the second fruit, joy. Well, do you have joy? This is something that if you pay attention uh, to plays and TV shows and movies, uh, many of our stories, uh, the ones that we like the most, are involved with this question of what is joy, where do I find it, how do I get it? Uh, One of my favorite TV shows, uh, it features one of the main characters, He's, he's a lot like a Solomon uh, figure where he has uh, all the wealth that anybody could ever want, and he tries to he has wealth and success, and he tries to fill his life up with with um, alcohol and with women and with partying and with all of the opulence uh, that the world can uh, give to him. Uh, but throughout this TV series, he understands that there's something missing in his life, and uh, he's given a video of himself when he's seven years old as a child opening a gift, and the camera is situated uh, such that you can't see what the gift is, but all you can see is his reaction to it. And so here's a man who has everything that the world can offer him, but he's missing joy, and he sees himself at seven years old opening a gift and getting so excited that he throws up. <laughs> and what he says is, if I just had the, whatever was in that box, then I would be happy, I would have joy. And so... Uh, the show goes on with him trying to capture that and find what it is, and he ultimately figures out it's a figure of the Apollo spacecraft because the thing as a child that brought him joy was space. Now, um, I don't mean to stretch this too far, but I think it's amazing that the world, when they say the only thing that can bring us joy is something from outside of this world, it's transcendent, it's beyond. And they said... Our joy has to come in something that is bigger than, than ourselves. Just like that man said, joy has to come from something like space. Now, the world says that we need joy, they understand it, but they really don't know where to find joy. And so today we're going to look at this second fruit of the Spirit, the joy that flows from our union with Christ. So... Um, <coughs> I just remembered I was supposed to convene the session. Uh, I'm sorry to, to pause right here, but I have to convene the session before we go on. So if I could have uh, the session members come forward and uh, sit up front for me. Sorry, guys. I know that's awkward. <laughs> but I, I was supposed to do that beforehand. We can't have an official service until I convene the session uh, and they have to be convened up here. So, And I have to do that before I preach the sermon. So sorry about that. Uh, I'll continue on now. So um, we're going to look at this uh, second fruit of the Spirit, uh, the, uh, the joy that flows from our union with Christ, uh, because Christians are meant to be marked by joy, set apart, and that joy is supposed to be evident with us. Uh, Jesus was actually a man that was full of joy, uh, and people wanted a, a part of that. They wanted a, the joy that he had. And so um, we need to ask ourselves this question, are our lives actually marked by joy? The same joy that Jesus had. So let me read this for us. 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, verses 3 through 9. This is God's good and kind word for you today. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded or shielded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the testing genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And let's pray and ask for the Lord's help in understanding this word. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for giving us this word, and we thank you for what it teaches us about your Son, Jesus Christ, and the joy that he had and the joy that we can have also. As we see and behold Jesus. Father, help us to understand this. Help us to have it in the ways that you would uh, give it to us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So this morning I want to look at this passage in three ways. We're going to look at joy defined first. Secondly, joy discovered. And then thirdly, joy displayed. So defined, discovered, and displayed. First of all, we have to define joy. What is joy? Uh, And joy is a lot like love. It seems like it should be an easy thing to define, but uh, as you scratch the surface of it, it actually gets a little bit harder to define what real joy is. Uh, You can go around and around with individuals, and I have and often do, about the difference between joy and happiness. And if there is a difference between joy and happiness, you can ask Kenny about his conversations with his brothers regarding or his brother regarding the difference between joy and happiness. Is there a difference? What is real joy? Uh, Well, there's three things that I want you to understand about joy that are going to help us uh, define what joy is from this passage. And those three things are this, that joy is permanent, joy is consistent, and joy is priceless. Those three things come out from this passage. In verse 4, Peter says, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. That, that the joy that we have from Christ, it, it doesn't fade away. It's imperishable. It doesn't go anywhere, so it's permanent. It also, in light of that, is consistent. That joy isn't changed according to our circumstances, and that our joy is actually very priceless, that you can't put a price tag on the joy that you have in Christ. So because of that, here's the definition that I want to give of joy. Joy is an internal disposition that is lasting through difficulty and suffering, that is consistent in its presence, and is spiritually priceless or irreplaceable. Okay, I'll read it again. Joy is an internal disposition that is lasting through difficulty or suffering, consistent in its presence in our lives, and is spiritually priceless or irreplaceable. That's... That's the definition I think comes out of the scriptures about joy. See, joy doesn't come and go. Joy isn't here one minute and gone the next. And joy isn't dependent upon our circumstances. All right, so that's what joy is, but what 
joy is not. What is joy not? I would say this. Joy is not merely an outward expression of happiness. Um, Joy doesn't come across always as a happy, smiling, grinning face. It doesn't come across that way. And to say that Christians are to be joyful or to have joy or the fruit of the spirit of joy is not to say that we always have to be smiling and happy and look like Joel Osteen every single day. We don't have to do that. That is not real Christian joy. Okay, um, And here's the proof of that. Look in verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary... You have been grieved by various trials. He uses two words that we often say are contradictory or opposed to each other. He says, you're joyful while you're grieved, even though you're grieved or mourning. So joy doesn't have to be an outward expression of happiness or grinning or any of those things. Because there are times as a Christian you will be grieved. You will mourn. But real joy, true joy does not go away when you're mourning. In fact, it comes out maybe most when you are mourning. So that's the first thing joy is not. It's not mere outward expression of happiness. Secondly, um, it's not southern pleasantry. (laughs) Um, It's not acting like southerners do most of the time whenever you're around other people that everything is just okay. I was having a conversation with a friend of mine this week who is an incredible pastor. Um, He's brilliant. He's smart. He's the kind of pastor that I would want to be. Uh, He was telling me about some particular difficulties that he's having in his family life. And and as we were discussing these things and as he was uh, bearing his soul and we were weeping over some of the stuff that was happening, a man walked up in the middle of our conversation and said, what's happening? How are things going? And he said, oh, it's fine. Everything's fine. And I said, we were just, we were trying to shield the fact that we were weeping over the hardship of his family. And because we're Southern, we feel like, oh, everything's good. Everything's fine. When nothing was really fine, he was being grieved to his soul. His heart was breaking over a family situation and my heart with him. But we felt like, oh, we have to say everything's okay. That's not real joy. Real joy is genuine. Real joy is not burdensome. Um, What I mean is this. It probably would not have been right for my friend at that point to say to this man that walked up, well, let me tell you all the problems that I'm having. No, I'm not saying that. But it is real. Real joy is real and honest. Having a pleasant disposition, as most Southerners try to do, isn't necessarily the fruit of the Spirit. Some of us, by uh, just our disposition, the one that God gave us, we're just happy, and that's fine. But just because you're outwardly happy doesn't mean that you have real joy. It might just mean that you're Southern. (laughs) So we need to be careful about that. So that's what joy is. That's what joy is not. I'll just once again give you that final definition. Joy is an internal disposition that is lasting, consistent, and priceless. And it expresses itself with honesty in good and bad times. That's real joy. Uh, If you're still struggling to write down that full definition, I can give it to you afterwards, okay? All right, so we've defined joy. How do we get joy? How do we discover joy? Just because we know what it is doesn't mean that we actually have it. So where does this joy come from? 
And I would say this, that Peter tells us that joy comes from two things in this passage. There are two things that Peter says that joy comes from. The first one is, and this is going to be weird, real joy comes from believing in the resurrection. Believing in the resurrection of Jesus. And the second one is loving Jesus or seeing the love of Jesus. Real joy comes from believing in the resurrection and loving Jesus or being loved by Jesus. So, so belief in the resurrection. How does joy come from that? Because you cannot have joy as a Christian or lasting joy unless you truly believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, how does that work? Well, secular historians, uh, historians who who appreciate Christianity and have studied Christianity but don't really believe it, are baffled by the growth of Christianity. And you can read the book of Acts and read about how it is that Christianity grew in the, in the early days. It expanded exponentially by some largely uneducated fishermen and people from the backwoods middle of nowhere as they spread out and went to all these major metropolitan areas and convinced people that Jesus was the Messiah. Well, how did they do that? And not only that, how did they do that in light of the fact that they were being beaten up uh, almost to the point of death? How did they maintain joy through, through their beatings and, and persecutions um, Paul multiple times was, was beaten in the city and dragged and left out for dead. And then by God's miraculous recovery, he was revived and would go on to preach the same exact message. How, where did they get that joy from? Well, here it is. Those individuals and at least 500 other people saw Jesus resurrected. They saw his bodily resurrection. And when they saw that, and they saw a man that was crucified, that had a spear shoved into his side all the way up to his heart, and saw the holes in his arms and in his feet, when they saw all of those things that that man lived, they said, there's nothing else in this world that can happen to me. If Jesus lives, man can do anything to me. I have a joy that cannot be taken from me because Jesus Lives. They saw the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's why whenever Peter says this, he says, verse 8, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Because those individuals, uh, the, the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles, uh, the 500 individuals that left Jerusalem to spread the gospel message, they said, Jesus was risen from the dead. He is alive today. And these individuals that Peter is writing to heard that message and believed it. They believed in the resurrection. And then he goes on in verse 8 to say, you, believe, or you love him even though you don't see him. You believe in him and you rejoice. So um, you love Jesus because of his salvation and you believe in the resurrection. You will not have joy in this life until you realize that Jesus has conquered sin and death. And there's nothing in this world that can take Jesus and his victory away from you. Just like the apostles went forward in joy to spread that gospel message, 
If you see and believe the Jesus as resurrected, you will have a joy that is inexpressible, that's hard to define, but is there. It's there. Uh, see, the world says that there are two ways for you to get joy. There, there's basically only two ways for you to get joy. Uh, the material worldview largely displayed in many places in the United States. Um, that if you work hard and you're responsible, then you get things. Uh, you get a paycheck and then you can use that paycheck to make yourself happy with the things that you buy. And so the world says that you can be happy by the things of this world. So that's the material view that the world says you can be happy. The second view is the immaterial view that you have to get rid of all of your stuff. And as you get rid of all your stuff and you realize your happiness isn't tied to the things of this world, then you're going to be happy. But that's not the biblical view. The biblical view is this. It's not anything that you can do to make yourself joyful. All you have to do is believe in Jesus and his resurrection and love him. And then you will have real, lasting joy. If you have stuff or you don't. If you make a lot of money or you don't. If you have a family or you don't. If things are good or things are bad. If you see Jesus and who he is and if you love him, then you will have joy. Jesus is your victory. He defeated the devil. He defeated sin. He defeated the world. He freed you from the debt of sin that you owe to God and the penalty that you deserve. And because of that, that that's why um, probably most of us really, really, if this, these aren't our favorite verses in the Bible, um, these are very close. These verses are close. Paul's words in Romans chapter 8, starting at verse 31. What then shall we say to these things if God is for us? Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor debt, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's where real joy comes from. Nothing can separate you from God. Joy that can last even when you're being put up to be killed for your faith in Jesus Christ. We are more than conquerors. So, the last thing, joy displayed. Joy displayed. Um, I was thinking about this this morning, thinking about fruit. Um, Whenever I go to the store, I'm looking for certain things in fruit. I want fruit to look a certain way. And it drives me nuts because you go up here to the Super Value here in Clinton, and all of their bananas are always green. I don't know why. They can't get yellow bananas, okay? Uh, But that's just kind of the expectation that we have in 21st century United States. We want our fruit to look a certain way. Uh, But the reality is, before the modernization of growing fruit, um, sometimes fruit would look 
smaller or larger. It would look good. It would look bad. Um, We don't see all the bad fruit. They weed all that stuff out, so we only see the good fruit. I want you to understand something. Um, To talk about uh, the fruit of the Spirit is to say that sometimes the fruit looks good, sometimes it looks bad. Sometimes you'll walk up to a lemon tree and the, and the lemons are nice and plump and yellow. Sometimes they're kind of shriveled up and gross looking. Guess what? It's still a fruit. It's still a lemon. And that's the way that this fruit is going to be for us. It's organic. It's not a formula. And what we're not saying by this is that you're always going to have the perfect kind of fruit, but it is still fruit, and that's what we're saying. So joy is expressed, I think, in three ways. Joy is surprising. Um, C.S. Lewis, and I mention him a lot, I talk about him a lot, he's one of my favorite 20th century Christian writers. C.S. Lewis did not want to be a Christian. He fought against Christianity for most of his young adult life. He could not stand the idea of being a Christian. But he had friends who were Christians, and he, he could not stand the fact that they were just so unintellectual, and they just, they just believed in this, this, this fairy god and all that. He, he fought against it because he was an intellectual. He was an academic. And they just said, look, I, just research this. Just, just study it. Just tell us. Um, just, you know, do the research. And he did, and lo and behold, he found out that what the Bible said was true. See, he, had an, and he believed in Jesus, but he did not like it. <laughs> He said, look, Jesus actually was, he did rise from the dead. If he did, he must be Lord, and I have to follow him. But again, he wasn't happy about it until he was obedient. And he wrote his his spiritual autobiography is called Surprised by Joy. Because he was grumpy and angry as he was a new Christian, but he was surprised by the fact that as he was obedient to Jesus, that he came to have a joy in his life that couldn't be taken away. Uh, a joy that manifests itself in many ways. He, he actually um, was a confirmed bachelor his, most of his life. Toward the end of his life, he, uh, he started a correspondence with a woman in the United States um, and fell in love with her, proposed to her, got married to her. She had a son. He didn't like children. He couldn't stand children. C.S. Lewis, this grumpy old man, all of a sudden had a little boy in his house because he was married to this woman. And then she got cancered and died. She got cancer. She died. And here was C.S. Lewis left with this boy. Um, There's a movie out. You don't have to read the book. It's Shadowlands. You can watch the movie. It's an incredible thing. C.S. Lewis discovering joy because of Jesus. Joy is surprising. Um, Secondly, joy is noticeable. It's noticeable and it's attractive to others. And I'm not saying that joy is always a flashing neon sign that, again, it's not always happy and grinning and and all that, but it is noticeable. Um, Jesus says if you have a light, you know, you don't put it under a bushel, you put it up on top of a stand so that the whole world can see. And that's what our joy is like. Joy is going to be expressed like that. Like it's on top of a stand or it's like a city on top of a hill that at night gives out its light. Your joy is going to be noticeable and attractive to others. Um, And then also joy is eternally hopeful. Joy is eternally hopeful. Um, Verse 8 again. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. See, joy clings to the promises of God. 
And even though things right now and circumstances right now don't look great, joy says, but Jesus is for me. And it's hopeful because, yes, things might not be great right now. It rests on the certainty of the one who gave the promises. So joy displayed, it's surprising, it's noticeable, and it's eternally hopeful. So we've seen, we've defined joy, we've discovered how it is we can have joy, we've seen it displayed. I just want to conclude by mentioning this man, um, Hugh McHale. Um, none of you have probably heard of Hugh McHale, uh, but he, uh, he's a relatively unimportant figure in the history of the world. Um, he was a pastor of the Covenanters. The Covenanters were a group of uh, Scottish Presbyterians who stood up against and fought against the king of England whenever he was trying to um, force them to worship in ways that he thought they should as Catholics. The Covenanters signed a covenant together saying we will fight against the king for religious freedom. Um, well, Hugh McHale was a sickly boy. He was a sickly man. Um, uh, through most of his life, he's just stayed sick. Um, so all he could do was stay inside. Uh, and in Scotland, uh, in the 16th century, by the way, they didn't have a lot of heat. and They didn't have any electricity. Uh, so he would stay inside and try to stay warm. Uh, he was a very small boy and turned into a very small man. Uh, but he actually ended up being able to go to college. Uh, he, at college, from the time he was 15 to the time he was 19, he graduated and decided that as a sickly man uh, that he would become a Presbyterian minister. And so he was ordained at the age of 20 years old as a Presbyterian minister. Um, he was so small and sickly that when people saw them, they thought he was a nine-year-old boy. Okay. But he would stand in the pulpit as long as he could and proclaim the glory of Jesus Christ and would with confidence call out the King of England. Uh, when it came time and the king of England sent his forces against Scotland and the Scottish Presbyterians, he actually said, I'm going to go fight for my people. He didn't want his people to fight, so he strapped a sword on himself, got on a horse. He was so weak, he couldn't stay on his horse. They had to tie him to his horse. But he said, I'm going to go fight for God's people. Ultimately, he was captured. He was, uh, was in prison for a few years. Uh, he had two trials. At his first trial, at the age of 25, um, the king, in order to try to find out where the other covenanters were, where they were hiding, they put a contraption on called a boot. And the boot was just an iron cast that they attached to your leg uh, that came all the way up to where your kneecap was. And then they took a steel wedge and they started driving that wedge in between your kneecap and the boot. Inflict pain to make him... Um, want to give up the names and just to be tortured. He couldn't walk anymore after that. And so um, he never gave up the names. He never did any of that. But he proclaimed the glory of Jesus Christ through all of that. Everywhere he went, they wouldn't carry him. And so they forced him to drag himself everywhere that he went to humiliate him. Back and forth from where he was staying in the prison back to whenever he was brought as a spectacle before others. He was given a, a final... Um, a final uh, um, um, trial in December 1666, and there they told him to recant. He didn't, and they said, well, you're going to go to the scaffold. You're going to be hanged for, for, uh, for your treason. 
As he was walking out, I'm sorry, not walking, dragging himself out, the people saw him, and again, he looked like a nine-year-old boy. They were weeping over him, and they were sad, and he was going around telling people, take heart, take courage. He saw a friend of his in the crowd, and he said, don't worry about me. In four days, I get to see Jesus. There's good news. I get to see Jesus. You see, Hugh McHale at 26 years old, had a joy that could not be taken from him because he saw Jesus. What about you? Have you seen him? Have you seen him? Joy never takes his eyes off of Jesus Christ. What about you? Where is your gaze? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for giving us this message today. We thank